For those of you who I haven't gotten the chance to meet yet, my name is Pedro and I'm the acting lead pastor here at City Life. And um, today is kind of uh, following my sermon from two weeks ago. Today is continuing this like pretty big things, pretty big themes of scripture. Uh, I really, really do believe that anytime you open scripture, something special and important is happening. But even within God's story, there are seminal moments. And last week and this week are seminal moments in Jesus's life. Uh, if you like me and you like good TV, your favorite show is The X-Files. <laughs> best show ever made. And um, in The X-Files, you know, there was this one major storyline that every season followed. And then there were a lot of episodes along the way that didn't necessarily touch the main themes, uh, but every once in a while there were these seminal moments that just jump-started God's plan for creation. And today is another one of those moments. Um, really quick, today we're going to be talking about God's glory. And how do you talk about God's glory? How do we even really fully understand God's glory? But God kept on putting this in my heart to share about, to identify with a little bit. Um, if you don't know, I am originally from Brazil. And a lot of people in the course of my life have really struggled with understanding that they live in a world where Pedro's can be white. I talked about this before and it seems silly every time. People really have a hard time accepting that there are white Pedro's in this world. It's for some reason very, very problematic for some people. And I learned really early on that even though I look like most of the people around me, um, that I could control how people viewed me by what I shared. You know, having the name Pedro kind of throws it out there a lot. I remember my mom tells me that as a kid I would come home crying every once in a while because I wanted to change my name to Peter. Um, and so the name kind of fools it. But if I don't tell people my name, I look like everyone else that I grew up with. I look just like everyone. See, my experience with racism has been really different in that I could control, for the most part, when racist things were done to me because I could control how people saw me for, for the most part. And, um, and it just always brings me back to my name. Like thinking about this always brings me back to my name. You know, I say that my name is Pedro Ruiz, but if you really, really want to know me, then you have to know that Pedro Ruiz isn't like really my name. My real name is Pedro Ivo Colistakidus Hayes, which is a mouthful. That's why I never say that. It's a very typical Brazilian name. Um, but to really, really know me, to like peel back the layers, that is who I really am. Like pay, I say Pedro Reese because that's easier for most people. I know that uh, a lot of a people from Asian cultures, you know, pick an English name just for the sake of that's just easier. My, my brother-in-law's nickname is uh, Gerson in Portuguese. And then when people mess up his name, which is often, he just says, yeah, can be. Um, but to really, to really, really know someone, like you have, they have to uh, reveal themselves to you. And that's what we're talking about today. We're going to be talking about the transfiguration, the super popular story, super famous, well-known story of what Jesus did uh, with three of his disciples. But before you really get into that, I want to cover uh, a passage in Philippians. This is Philippians 2. If you've been in downtown MC, you've heard me talk about this. It's come up casually all the time because it's just so important to our faith. 
Uh, Philippians 2 says this, uh, verses 6 to 8. Who, though he was Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself, becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. The fact that Jesus, over and over and over again, we talk about in theology terms, he condescended down to us. He condescended down to creation, the creation that he he spoke into existence, and he even condescended into taking our human form, like this... This is not who Jesus really was. It's part of him, and he put on flesh, and he decided to come down here. But today we're going to read about a story when Jesus showed us who he really was, the depths of who he really was. And so a lot of pastors say that we, you should give your church like this one easy-to-remember, that sounds really nice sentence for every sermon, but today I, have to, I utterly failed at this because this is our sentence for today. Tony, if you could follow me with it, is that Jesus is the encapsulation, the embodiment, the fleshed out, breathing expression, the personification, the realization, the collection, the exemplification, the incarnation, the integration of God's glory with creation. That Jesus somehow is all of these things. That somehow Jesus in this one man, in this one body, in this one life, was all all man and yet all God. And so let's go on. Let's, let's read Mark. We're going to be in Mark 9 if you want to follow there with us on your Bible. If not, it'll be on the screen. But Mark 9, verses 2 to 13 says this. And after six days, Jesus took with him Peter and John, James and John and led them up to a high mountain by themselves. And he was transfigured before them, and his clothes became radiant, intensely white, as no one on earth could bleach them. And there appeared to them Elijah and Moses, and they were talking with Jesus. And Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, it is good that we are here. Let us make three tents, one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah. For he did not know what to say, for they were terrified. And a cloud overshadowed them, and a voice came out of the cloud, This is my beloved Son, listen to him. And suddenly looking around, they no longer saw anyone with them but Jesus only. And as they were coming down on the mountain, he charged them to tell no one what they had seen until the Son of Man had risen from the dead. So they kept the matter to themselves, questioning what this rising of the dead might mean. And they asked him, why do the scribes say that Elijah must come? And he said to them, Elijah does come first to restore all things. And how it is written of the Son of Man that he should suffer many things and be treated with contempt. But I tell you that Elijah has come, and they did, not, and they did to him what they pleased, as it is written of him. Please pray with me. Lord, uh, I thank you for this day, and I thank you for bringing us back another week, Lord. Uh, Let us never take that for granted. Lord, um, today we're going to be talking about your glory, and I ask that your glory would just be made evident here in in the reading of your word, Lord. I pray that you would touch all of our hearts, Holy Spirit. You're welcome to do your work, the work that only you can do to transform us, to make us more like you. Help us to know what your glory looks like today and what this means. 
Lord, we love you, we thank you, we follow you. In Jesus' name, amen. And so before we really dive in, we got to lay some groundwork, because if you are astute and you were really listening and reading, we actually never see the word glory here at all. And so how can we be talking about this story as Jesus proving, showing, revealing to us his true nature, which is that he is all of God, that he is the embodiment, the encapsulation, all those that were up there, that he is all of that. And it really starts with one word, and it is the Greek word for metamorphou, which is the word there that we translate into transfiguration. You see, the, the word metamorpho sounds really familiar. It's where we get our English word metamorphosis, and it's this idea of Jesus busting out of his cocoon, that he, for a second, in some divine capacity, is able to peel back his humanity, is able to peel back what they saw, is able to peel back the man, and we only saw what was left, which is the Son, the Son of Man. And what comes forth? We see his nature, is that he is radiant, that there is this light that is emanating from his, even his clothes are radiating this essence, and that he's white and pure. For a second, let's just detour one second, we are still in Black History Month, so let me address this really quickly and really clearly, that there is nothing here, if anyone ever uses God's word to affirm that any one skin color is better than the rest, or that the themes of scripture address this, this is utterly false. That the, these ancient books are not written from our purview, and their relationship to colors and the way that we think colors and skin colors has nothing to do with God's word. And so if anyone ever brings and gets out any comfort out of God's word because of the skin that they are, have, then you do not know God, and God needs to do a deep work in you. Uh, the idea here is not that white is better in any way. It's that these are desert people. These are people who are used to dirt and sand and mud. And here, look at their reaction. It's like, oh, you can't even bleach at this color. He starts talking about laundry. And is, this is just this idea of purity, that in Jesus there is so much purity, that in his nature, in God's nature, there is no blemish, that there is nothing in the way. So I'll end that detour really quick. God's word says nothing about any race being above any other. In fact, it over and over and over and over again says the opposite, that all men are equal. Amen? So let's get back. God's glory. In this instant, we see that when Jesus somehow is able to peel back and we see his real nature, we see this light, we see this power, we see all of the compassion, all of the things that you've always heard about God is what we see in Jesus. And so, because you guys know I'm a little bit of a Bible nerd, I'm a little bit of a stickler for the uh, ancient languages, and so we'll talk about the best language of them all, Hebrew, really quick, and then I'll give Greek a little bit of time. Uh, the Hebrew word for glory, the word that gets translated the most for glory in the Old Testament is this word kavod. Can you say kavod with me? And kavod, because the Hebrew is always literal, kavod literally means weight. It's a heaviness. And I love that. I love that that's the picture that God told them to use when talking about glory. When we talk about God's glory, we say that, oh, he is so much bigger than us. He is so much heavier than us that we can't wrap our arms around all of God and we can't pick him up and we can't bring him along with us. In fact, even uh, 1 Samuel teaches us at the end of Eli's life, 
uh, him and his sons start to get, a, you know, a little too weighty for their own good. They think that their own glory is a little bit too powerful. And so to go and fight a battle, Eli's sons go with the Ark of the Covenant to use God as a vending machine and to say, hey, God, win this fight for us instead of asking God, do you want us to be in this fight? And of course, like God always, he always does, he doesn't let them get what they want. And the, Eli's sons are killed and the, covenant, the Ark of the Covenant is taken. And then when Eli hears about this, it's so funny. God is so humorous. Eli, well, it's not that funny. Eli, fa <laughs> Eli falls over in his chair, breaks his neck, and dies. And the picture there is that, oh, Eli, you think that you're weighty? You think that your success in life makes you anything? His own weight actually breaks his neck. And what a picture of what we do often, like win success or win good times, is that, oh, we, instead of giving God all the glory and the weight and say, God, you are the best, we actually, like, even physically get a little fatter. Me too, sorry. And then let's talk about the Greek word, doxa. Uh, this word is much more similar to the idea of glory that we are used to. Doxa means brightness, it means splendor, it means magnificent, magnificence, magnificence, and fame, you know the word, <laughs> and fame, and it's this idea that God is so great, he's so bright that we cannot even stand in his presence, that even the light that comes out of Jesus is, it hurts us because we cannot stand in God's glory. God's glory is always so much above us, it's so much ahead of us, it's so much more real than what we're able to even take in. And that should always remind us of where we stand with God, that we need God. We need Jesus to be God's glory. So let's continue to unpack this a little. Uh, we need to talk about the two men that are present here, because it's so funny. Why Elijah and why Moses? Out of all of the people that ever lived, out of all of the even big-name people that we know of, why Elijah and why Moses? One really, really, really clear answer is that it's because these two men were the only men who ever saw God's glory in their mortal lives. That of course God would send Elijah, and of course he would send Moses there, because they could stand there and say, yeah, that's what I saw. Oh, yeah, that's, yeah, that's what I experienced. Let's talk about those two experiences really quick. Moses lived such a crazy life for God. He saw God in so many different ways. He saw him in a bush. He saw him in a pillar of smoke that they would follow and then a pillar of uh, fire that they would follow at night. God worked and showed himself to Moses crazy ways. When he would go into the tent of meetings, that pillar of smoke would, would descend and go into the tent with him. And the Bible says that, God, that Moses would talk to God face to face with this. Crazy, crazy. Like if we could experience a fraction of what Moses went through, it would be amazing. And yet there was this one time when, G, when God told Moses to go up to Mount Sinai to go and make the Ten Commandments. And then in, in, verse, in chapters 33 and 34, something really, really, really interesting happens. Moses has the audacity rightfully so, to ask God, God, can I see your glory? And then God said, okay, go onto this, go onto the mountain and hide behind this rock, and I will walk past you. But you can't see my face because no man can live and see my face. 
instead, like this is, this is such a funny way to talk about God's glory. God says, I will walk past you and I'll shield my hand and then when I am, in, when, I am when my back is facing you, I'll let you see my glory. And the, word, the Hebrew literally says backside. It's like God is like, I will let you see my backside because you can't even handle my face, but maybe you can handle my back. It is pretty nice. <laughs> and in that moment, like, Moses is told to hide behind a stone, a big rock on the mountain, because even God's backside is too glorious for Moses to take in. When he goes and leads the mountain after this, Silly talked about it in her call to worship, um, he had such an experience with God's glory, it so came into who he was in that moment that his face shone. Like it was emanating, just like Jesus when he was transfigured. Moses' face shone. And the picture of that is so beautiful because when we meet God, it changes us. But when we bring that change to all around us, people get uncomfortable because down to our very nature, we cannot stand in God's presence for too long. And they actually made Moses veil his face. Like he, after he met God, he would have to veil his face because that light and that glory was so uncomfortable to us because it exposes us so much that we cannot stand in God's glory for so long. I would love to talk about this all day, but we've got to move on a little bit. Let's talk about Elijah. Elijah had another crazy experience. He went and he confronted the prophets of Baal. He made this giant show, and God won. He burned the altar that was drenched in water, and he slaughtered thousands of false prophets. Crazy. Somehow God empowers him to run faster than all of the horses and chariots, and he beats all the emissaries to the king, to, Rahab, uh, to Ahab and to Jezebel, and he expects them to believe in God, and then they say no, and he quits. He just quits his ministry. He goes to Mount Sinai, and he's like, God, I'm done. There's no one in Israel that can do your work. I'm the only one left, and it's done. I quit. And then in that moment, God tells him, be careful because I'm going to walk past you. On the same mountain that he showed himself to Moses, he walks past where Elijah was. And, some, and it's a crazy experience. There's all of a sudden, out of nowhere, there's a strong wind, but Bible, the Bible says God wasn't in the wind. And then there was an earthquake, a violent earthquake, but God wasn't in the earthquake. And then all of a sudden a fire came, but God wasn't in the fire. All those things are, are his and they belong to him, but he wasn't in any of those. Instead, all of a sudden, Elijah started to hear a still, small voice. And scripture says that God was in that voice. And though all of these experiences shook the mountain and broke things, I'm sure it destroyed parts of the mountain, God wasn't in those, he was in the still, small voice. And what a beautiful way to segue us back into our Mark passage here. That God would bring his still, small voice, that Jesus would be willing to condescend himself down here to take on our flesh, that he would be all of God all the time and be administering what God would do. You know, we ask ourselves the question, what would Jesus do? When thinking about God's glory, I think the better question is, what did Jesus do? Because if Jesus is the embodiment, the encapsulation, the living out of all of God's glory, then all we have to do is look to Jesus. Amen? All right, and so with, this, with the theme of this voice, 
Um, remember a couple weeks ago, I, we introduced the new way to think of Mark, about how it had three acts, and we're in the second act, and act two really talks about why does it matter that Jesus is the Christ, and that in every act there was a heavenly voice. In the first act, the heavenly voice was that God rang out during his baptism and said, this is my son, no, what is it? you are my beloved son, with you I am well pleased. And then in act two, his message switches, it's, it's similar, but it switches, it says, this is my beloved son, listen to, to him, excuse me. Now God's word all of a sudden becomes really public when Jesus is showing who he really is to a couple of people, and when Elijah and Moses are there confessing who Jesus is, all of a sudden God starts to tell us, this is my son, listen to him. The word isn't about to Jesus anymore, but it's about everyone who will ever listen to him. God is saying, this is my son, and we should listen to him. And so let's talk about the responses here that we see in this story. Let's talk about what happens. Let's read verses 5 and 6 again really quick. 5 and 6 says, And Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, it is good that we are here. Let us make three tents, one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah. For he did not know what to say, for he was terrified. And then a cloud overshadowed them, and a voice came out of the cloud. This is my beloved son. Listen to him. And suddenly, looking around, they no longer saw anyone with them, but Jesus only. And so Jesus is teaching us here, how do we live out with God's glory? The first thing that we learn from this is that God's glory is never meant for us to stay in that place. That when God does something really powerful in your life, when God breaks through and God shows you his glory, when he gives you freedom, when he works out your circumstances, you weren't made to stay there. Our natural inclination is to be like, hey God, let's stay here and never leave this place, right? If God is working in your life through a spiritual gift that you've never experienced before, like we can become obsessive and try and recreate that scenario or recreate that gift, right? But God is saying, no, it's not about the gift. It's about the one who gives you those gifts. It's not about that season in your life, but you are the one that you're supposed to take this glory and like Moses, take it out with you. Have it shine on your face. I don't even know what that looks like, but have it shine out on your face everywhere you go after that. You're not meant to stay in the place when God does something powerful. It's a strong temptation, because why wouldn't you want to stay in this safe place, in this place where God is doing amazing things, when you're seeing things that no one has ever seen before? Why wouldn't you want to stay there? But God's saying, don't worry. The same one, the same man who gave you that experience is going with you for you to carry that glory everywhere you go. And then the second thing that we see here that is so funny is that all you need is Jesus. Here at the end it says, after the voice rings out, it says, and suddenly looking around, they no longer saw anyone. It was just Jesus. The, like, the abruptness of that is so funny. God did that on purpose, I am sure of it, because he is saying, you know what, you don't need Elijah, you don't need Moses, you don't always need your pastor, you don't always need the people around you. You know who you really need? You need Jesus. Jesus is God's glory. He is the encapsulation of everything, the embodiment of all of what God is, is found in Jesus. We don't need anyone else. That's not, the that's not a message about community, because God very clearly calls us to community. But Jesus is the only one that you need. 
that God sent his son here to come and to live and to die for us on purpose, and that that glory lived out the life that God lived, would have always lived out here. We only need Jesus. Now, I remember in um, my own ministry, one time when I worked at Nyack with Emmanuel, I was one of the campus pastors, and one day out of nowhere at three in the morning, I got a phone call that uh, one of the girls on, the, on campus was manifesting a demon because she had done something that nobody was really sure, but she was, it wasn't the movie stuff, but it was, she was screaming, she was crying, she was rolling around a little bit, uh, and I got this call at three in the morning, I was like, oh, great, okay, let's go. I've never done this exact experience before, but let's go for it. We, I can pray for her, right? And, uh, over, and people tried to help her, people tried to talk to her, and then all of a sudden, in my soul, I really felt God say, just give her a fatherly hug. This was before we had any kids, but that was what I felt. And often when I was at Nike, I felt like a, a dad, a premature dad. And all I, all I felt God was telling me was, give this girl a hug. That she's just lost her way. That she needs a touch. Just give her a hug. Nothing inappropriate. Just hug her and tell her that God loves her. And that was such an impactful and important experience in my life. Because that girl, she came back together she got control of herself. We managed all of the spiritual things that we needed to manage in that moment, and she found freedom. I failed her in some ways afterwards, but she did find freedom. And I remember for weeks after that, she would, she would come up to me and she'd be like, I, Pedro, I can't even look at you because your face and your eyes are too bright. And I'm like, listen, girl, there's nothing on my face right now. Like, clearly God's doing something in your heart right now. It was, not, it was never about me, but it was about God. It was about what God was doing. And I just find that so beautiful. In this story of the transfiguration, that Jesus peeled back whatever he needed to peel back and showed us that he was really God's glory and that God in his wisdom knew that we needed a personal touch, that we needed his glory to come here and to touch the land and to touch people and to heal people and to speak truth all of, over all of us, that God would condescend himself all the way down here, take our form and love us in all of the right ways that God knew that we needed. Guys, like we need to talk about this for the rest of our lives. That Jesus was not just a man, though he was a man, that he was the incarnate glory of the Lord. That's that is the difference between our faith and any other faith in the world, is that this one man somehow was more than a man, that he somehow was all of God, and that he came and touched everything in his way, and everything became more whole than it was when he left. And so what does this really mean for us going forward? How does our church take this in and live out in God's glory every day of our lives? You know, there's this one more confusing part towards the end that starts talking about Elijah, and there's a lot of theological significance there, but for the sake of today, I want to focus on the last verse. It says, But I tell you that Elijah has come, and they did to him whatever they pleased, as it is written. You know, God sent us throughout all of his redemptive plan. He sent us people. He sent us amazing people. Tony, if you could put that slide up that he sent us all of these men. Next one, please. 
that he did send us Moses, he sent us Elijah, Elisha, Aaron, Isaac, Jacob, Joseph, David, Samuel, Daniel, Peter, Paul, Stephen, Barnabas, Timothy, James, just to name a few. God sent us these people, but you know what? We did to them, and also they, because they were not perfect, did as they pleased at times. That they were not perfect, that they were not the glory of the Lord, though they got glimpses of who this glory would be. And then you know what? God also sent powerful women all throughout God's story. That he sent Rebecca, Rachel, Leah, Rahab, Esther, Ruth, Deborah, Hannah, Miriam, Elizabeth, Martha, and 17,000 Marys. There's so many Marys in God's story. I do not know why he loves that one name so much. But he sent us an army of Marys. And you know what? They were not God's glory. That they maybe had parts of his glory and that they showed us glimpses of who this one would be, but they were not the glory of the Lord. Guys, we celebrate and we worship Jesus because he is the glory of the Lord. And so that changes us profoundly. That changes us and gives us hope for our lives and for the future. You know, two weeks ago I preached when Jesus said before this that we are to deny our, that if we want to follow him, we deny ourselves, we take up our cross and we follow him. And that's a big ask. That's asking us to lose our life, to lose our life for the gospel And it sounds as harsh, but coming from the glory of the Lord, the one that we need, the only one that we need, there's no better place to be. And you'll never truly find your life, and you'll never truly find yourself if you don't find this one that all of God's glory rests in. And so, also practically, really, what does it mean for our church? This is what I really, really felt like I needed to communicate today to our church is that when we see God's glory, when we're in God's glory, we can accept our brokenness because we truly are broken and because when we see God's glory, we know that he's big enough to help us. And so we can be broken with one another. We can go to MCs and we can cry with one another. Excuse me. I've been on staff here for almost three years and I've rarely gotten an emergency call. Like, that's not okay. I should be bothered by you guys regularly. Like, my life should be disturbed with calls saying, hey, I'm not okay. This needs to happen more. This needs to happen with one another more. And when we really know God's glory, and we see Jesus in front of us, we can be broken. We can just rely on one another, suffer together, and chase after Jesus. Sorry, I rarely can cry, talk when I'm crying. But when we know this Jesus, when we see God's glory on Jesus and what he's able to do, when we answer the question, what does this mean that Jesus is the Christ? It means everything. And that we honor God's glory when we live out the life that we were called to. Guys, Jersey City would not be safe against God's church if we really knew God's glory and if we really lived like it we really live like we depended on God's glory, that we don't have to be okay. Guys, there are a lot of fancy jobs in here. You can be broken even if you are, have your life together. That the people who aren't, don't have fancy jobs in here, you can be okay and open and broken about your life. That we don't have to always be put together. 
when we experience God's glory, we see that it's okay because God is big enough to help us. That Jesus is loving enough. That God didn't want to even send a rescue plan where he wasn't involved, but he was the one who said, here, I'll come down here and do it myself and touch and restore everything that, I, that is in my way. And so let's take a second and let's worship this Jesus. I'll come back up here and we'll close this out, but let's worship the one where all of God rests in and that when he shows us his true nature, we celebrate that and we take it to every place that we have to go. Amen? So let's worship this Jesus. Jesus.